Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Susan L. Bratton, MD, MPH. She is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. She is also in the Division of Critical Care Medicine at Primary Children's Medical Center. Dr. Bratton is with us today to discuss her article, Critical Care for Pediatric Asthma, Wide Care Variability and Challenges for Study, which is published in the July 2012 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for being here, Dr. Bratton. Thank you for having me. Uh, Susan, would you start by giving us some background to your study? What led you to study asthma in critically ill children? Well, I, I guess that's always a good question, what inspires one. But um, I think that I had an interest in asthma primarily because it's a common disease in children, and it's a common reason to be admitted to the ICU. And so I've, over the years, have done a number of studies looking at critical asthma care and um, have come to kind of appreciate some of the problems. And my history on that goes back to uh, years ago when Murray Pollack was validating the PRISM-3, he made his data set available for people to study. And one of the diagnosis codes that, that he had for ICU admission was asthma. And so when we looked at that, we came across kind of an interesting observation because in Dr. Pollock's data, there was a lot of physiologic information so that you had a sense that you could judge the severity of illness. And there was huge variation in use of invasive therapies, including mechanical ventilation at different hospitals. So that some of the hospitals almost never use the ventilator in their asthmatic patients, and some patients, the hospitals used it up to 50% of the time. And the rates of using a central venous catheter or an art line were also similarly different. And so we went through and we looked at both the children that were mechanically ventilated and the children who were treated without mechanical ventilation and looked at within those two subsets, even adjusted for their PRISM scores and their PACO2s, that the centers that use ventilation frequently, and we had picked an arbitrary cutoff of over 20% of the time of, for the admissions with asthma had longer lengths of stay among the intubated patients and among the unintubated patients. And, you know, sometimes in critical care, you know, more is better, and then sometimes in critical care, more is less. So we had come up with that uh, information. And, and about that time, I think, at least in my practice, there was a moving over to using uh, support modes of ventilation rather than control modes. And I don't know if, you know, people remember uh, that was reported by Randall Wetzel. But anyway, so, you know, we started tolerating a pretty uh, substantial amount of hypercapnia. You know, sometimes you couldn't prevent it. Sometimes you just tolerated it. And so, you know, the advantage of being mechanically ventilated, it seemed more of a disadvantage then at the same time that that was going on, if you looked at the NHLBI guidelines for management of asthma, it said to consider intubation if your PCO2 was over 42. 
So, you know, I, I came to realize in the first study when you looked at what some centers would tolerate, they would allow the PCO2 to be 60, 80 without intubating, and the patients, you know, tended to stay in the hospital less long and not be ventilated, and it seemed to me that in this situation that more might be worse. So then I um, was working with a, a friend of mine at St. Louis, uh, Fiona Levy, and we came across the FIS database in the early 2000s. And for people who, who don't know what that is, that's actually what we used in this last study that I'll finally get to this long-winded answer. But um, it's an administrative database that's owned by the Child Healthcare Corporation of America, which collects both demographic but also a lot of administrative data, such as charge data on medications and procedures. So it, it's kind of like the standard administrative discharge data that you could get with the HCUP or the KID database, but you can look at the therapies. You can't look to see exactly what order the therapies came in within a day, and you can't look at the appropriateness of it as far as the dose because you don't always have the child's weight, but you can see that they got certain medications. So we went through and looked at a group of kids from 2000 to 2003 who had a primary diagnosis for asthma and just looked at the variation in what I call second-tier therapy. So if everybody agrees that inhaled beta agonists and systemic steroids are first line and, you know, as recommended by the NHLBI, then we looked at inhaled anticholinergics, systemic beta agonists, methylxanthines, and magnesium sulfate, and heliox kind of as what I call second or, you know, what some people do and some people don't do, and looked at the rates of intubation. And so there was just enormous variation in care by different hospital centers. And um, the thing that I guess that that paper showed was that the use of mechanical ventilation was going down overall. So in the second study, the overall rate of intubation was 14%. But the thing that was most interesting is if you looked at it, over half the kids were intubated for a day or less because the billing data is by day. And that's where the variability was. So if, if you took out the children that were intubated a day or less, the rates of ventilation were very similar across hospitals. So, and as an ICU provider, of course, I would, you know, always say, well, the ER did it. <laughs> but but it, it looked like that there were some children that, you know, maybe didn't really need to be intubated or needed to be intubated for a very short period of time. So finally, in answer to this question, the CAPCORN network, which is the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network, for whom um, Michael Dean, who I work with, is the uh, data coordinating center, uh, is considering looking at critical asthma for um, more study as part of their network. So they actually had a question that they wanted to look at the FIS data because a fair number, not every one of the CAPCORN centers, but a fair number of the CAPCORN centers belong to FIS. So they basically wanted to know if there's still was the same variation in care because if you're going to study something, you can't think that there is an accepted standard. And to evaluate if the CAPCORN centers were representative of other U.S. children's hospitals and then to just look at the outcomes to see, you know, what sort of power uh, and sample size one would need to, to look at the various 
potential study outcomes. So they asked me to basically look at a more contemporary data set from FIS as a background to why this paper happened. Uh, so what did you do in this study? Okay, so this study basically uh, evaluated everyone who was between 1 and 18 years of age who was treated at a FIS hospital, and there are about 42 children's hospitals that participate in FIS between 2004 and 2008 who had a primary diagnosis of their first ICD-9 code for asthma, and then they didn't have cystic fibrosis or bronchiolitis. And so we basically evaluated their demographic information, their admission source, uh, what meds they got, and procedures. And the procedures were evaluated with two pieces of information. There, Some of the procedure codes there are ICD-9 codes for, so just like uh, mechanical ventilation and um, complication codes like cardiac arrest and air leak. And then there are also in FIS these things called CTC codes, which are the charge codes. And so we could look to see if a center both coded for mechanical ventilation with ICD-9 codes and with the CTC codes. And, and just as a disclaimer, you know, the data are very close, but they are not perfect. So that's uh, certainly um, a limitation of the, of the data. But basically what we did is we collected this data and looked at the centers divided by as a CAPCORN center and a non-CAPCORN center. So if you were in the collaborative study group, and then among the CAPCORN centers, we looked at the diversity in their care, and we looked among all the patients and then among the patients that got mechanical support. And mechanical support was defined as either uh, endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation or, or non-invasive ventilation. So what did you find when you looked at this um, database of a large number of hospitals? Yeah, so we got a large number of children, which was a good thing. So there were uh, over 13,000 kids. There are almost 2,800 of them, or about 2,800 of them were treated at a CAPCORN center, and the remainder were at a non-CAPCORN center. So um, what we basically found was within the CAPCORN centers for the entire group is there was, again, huge variation in care. So if you kind of went through what I would call the second-tier therapies again, although the use of ipitropium bromide, which oddly enough, you know, is recommended in the NHLVI guidelines as a first-line therapy in the ER, but it's recommended against as a first-line therapy in the hospital, uh, it averaged about 60%, that 60% of the kids got it in the ICU, but the variation was huge. And then terbutaline was about 24%, again, with huge variation. Mag sulfate was only 37%. And the methylxanthines were much less common at 5%. And heliox was about 15%. But that one varied between centers never using it and using it up to 80% of the time. And then uh, BiPAP was used a lot less commonly than I would have expected, which was 3%. But then, as, as one would hope, the complications were very, very low rates. You know, um, pneumothorax varied between, you know, zero and uh, less than 1% of the time among all comers. Cardiac arrest was zero to 2%. Aspiration was zero to 2%. And if you looked at the median lengths of stay in the ICU, they were very similar, you know, between one and two days. And, you know, we were worried about length of, of ICU stay because 
that depends on so many other things other than the patient's severity of illness. And then death was very rare. It was 0.3% um, of the times. So some of the other things that we also looked at that I think are helpful for potential studies is within the Capcorn centers, we looked at the readmission rates. So if, as long as a child returned to the same hospital, so you couldn't tell if they went to a, you know, like in, say, instance, in New York City, you know, there are lots of hospitals one could go to. But if you look at the readmission rate, if once you were admitted to the hospital, 12% of the kids were readmitted to the ER. Um, usually at a, a median time of five months, so pretty commonly. 17% of them were readmitted to the hospital, and 6% of them were readmitted to the ICU. And then the thing that was interesting when you looked at the kids that were mechanically ventilated, their rate of readmissions were very similar, 9% to the ER, 16% to the hospital, 6% to the ICU. Um, so it... So those were interesting things. Yeah, you and might then, expect that kids who were intubated might be at somewhat higher risk for readmission. Yeah, that's what you would that's what you would certainly think, but that wasn't what we really found. So that was interesting. If you looked at the mechanically supported kids, they had all their rates of therapies were higher but still diverse. You know, if you look at the epitropium bromide, terbutylene, magnesium sulfate, so they, they got more, but they, they, they still got them in a varying amount. And then when you looked at um, how the Capcorn centers compared to other centers, you know, one of the problems was that we had huge numbers, so all the, a lot of the numbers were statistically different, but they didn't really seem clinically different. You know, where mm -hmm. if, if you used IV beta agonists 20% of the time or 22% of the time. Right. So they seemed kind of clinically representative of um, the non-Capcorn centers. The other thing that I found the most interesting, because it was interesting to me, <laughs> was uh, when you looked at where children were intubated and trying to get at that idea of why children were intubated in such a short period of time. And one of the variables that you had in the data set was if the child was treated at that is hospital's emergency department. So if you could tell if they were treated in the ED, that they went from the ED to the ICU. If they were not treated in that hospital's ED, then you couldn't tell the source of the patient. So the, the patient could have come from your own hospital floor or from a mm -hmm. different hospital floor or a different hospital ED. But one thing we did is we looked at all the patients that received mechanical support if they were at a phys hospital or a non-phys hospital. And um, there were a number of interesting points about that. So 44% of the kids were intubated in the PICU, and so the majority of the kids were intubated elsewhere. And of the kids that were intubated elsewhere, their median time to uh, ventilation was very short. It was it was a day, so which would kind of validate the idea that, you know, either people were more nervous or they felt the child was unstable for transport, and then they got to the ICU and the ICU people said, oh, they're not so bad. <laughs> um, and then the other the other thing that was interesting is if, and this was a limitation of the data, is that 
I couldn't tell if you would charge for mechanical ventilation and BiPAP on the same day. I, the data are not timed. So I, I made a, a generalization that, that if you would charge for BiPAP and mechanical ventilation on the same first hospital day, that the assumption was is that you went from BiPAP to invasive ventilation, which, you know, could or could not be true. Sure. But, um, but if, you, if you did that, the children that were treated with BiPAP, 60% of them never went on to intubation. So you, you could have, have your cup half full and say that, you know, you staved off mechanical ventilation or you could say they never needed the BiPAP in the first place. But if, if you looked at that, then you would think that, that BiPAP was at least useful in some of the kids. And the BiPAP kids tended to be older than the kids that were directly intubated. And then if you looked at the kids that were on BiPAP and then mechanical ventilation in the ICU so that you could tell from that there were intubation codes in the ICU, uh, those kids didn't seem to be harmed in that they, their length of mechanical ventilation was similar to the children who were directly intubated when they came to the ICU. So I think those were kind of the major findings. Did you find differences between the CAPCORN centers and the non-CAPCORN PICUs? Yeah, so there, there certainly there were some differences. You know, the rate of mechanical ventilation was a little higher in the CAPCORN centers than in the non-CAPCORN centers. It was 12 versus 10 percent. If you looked at the, how clinically important they, some of the differences were, they didn't seem very different. So like the use of IV terbutaline was 24% versus 21% treated at the CAPCORN centers and the non-CAPCORN. Use of ipatropium bromide was 59% versus 71%, which was one of the bigger differences. But the median length of ICU stay was still one day at both centers. So it's hard. Both types of centers. Yeah, hard to know what's uh, optimal treatment when <laughs> there are so many variations out there, and they all give you about a one-day ICU stay. That's that's exactly right. So, what do you think contributes to the variation in uh, treatment of critically ill children with asthma? Well, from my perspective, I think there are two major differences. That when, at least, when you look at these data sets, I think. One of the differences, and certainly in the rates of intubation, is where your ICU lives. So that if you get a lot of patients from your own ER, oh, that's another thing I forgot to mention. If you were at a Phys Hospital ED, you were more likely to be put on BiPAP and then transferred to the ICU and less likely to be intubated, which makes sense if you're at a children's hospital there would be people that were A, experienced, and B, had lots of resources. Yeah, and you alluded earlier to uh, the need to be stable for transport. So if you're initially seen at a non-children's hospital and transported to a ch children's hospital, uh, that may contribute as well to um, early intubation. Right, right. And so I, I think um, some of the variation, certainly when you look at rates of intubation, is, you know, which emergency departments are sending patients to your ICU. Mm -hmm. And I and I think that the other variation in, IC, in ICU care just reflects the lack of consensus regarding asthma therapies. You know, if you if you look at it, there's what I call the first tier therapies, which everybody 
you know, thinks you're a, a grease that you're doing a bad job if you don't give them steroids and inhale beta agonists and oxygens. But then if you look even at the NHLBI guidelines and the Global Initiative on Asthma guidelines, there's very little about ICU care, you know, and, and then there are differences of opinion, just like I alluded to before, how, you know, if atropium bromide is recommended in the ER and it's recommended against in the hospital, which unless you're on a different level of, you know, elevation in the hospital, it's hard to understand physiologically. <laughs> I would agree. You know, and, and the the one thing that I think is reflected that the guidelines make a difference is if you look at the FIS data between the first time I looked at it and the second time I looked at it, the biggest difference or change was increasing use of magnesium sulfate, which has been, you know, shown in some studies to lower your rate of hospital admission and is recommended now as a Class B evidence by the NHLBI and its use is more common, but, you know, all these other therapies, systemic beta agonists, methylxanthines, which have been shown in a number of Australian New Zealand studies to be associated with lower rates of intubation, you know, the NHLBI actually recommends against because of toxicity, and they recommend against uh, isoproteranol in particular, but not other systemic uh, beta agonists. And so I, I think it just reflects that people really don't know, and I think that each of us is guilty of working in a system that, you know, either is convinced that Heliox is non-toxic and you can use it as carrier gas for albuterol, and so you try that, or you, you've had poor luck with children keeping the mask on, and you try systemic beta agonists because you know that they're not going to rain out in the ventilator circuit, and we all have our own opinions. And never let the absence of data interfere with a strong opinion. Well, yes, and I, and I think one of the things that's difficult with asthma is, you know, because we don't have a frequent hard outcome. You know, death is True. a very hard outcome, True. and death is very rare in asthma, but thankfully. And, you know, just like all these asthma scores are not well validated and accepted. And so children can't participate frequently in pulmonary function tests. And so, you know, knowing what the optimal outcome is is, is really hard. Right. And readmissions is probably a function of post-hospital care more than it is of what is done in the ICU. Yes, I certainly agree. You know, because in the other thing which I'm sure most of the ICU providers know, is that, you know, asthma unduly afflicts poor kids and minority kids and kids that are exposed to smoke, which those and things in the environment don't usually change very much for you. Right. So how does your study help us in designing future studies? So one of the things that we certainly did is we documented the rates of various outcomes, such as length of stay and duration of mechanical ventilation and air leak which, you know, can be used to estimate sample size. I think we gave a lot of light on sites of intubation and to realize that mechanical ventilation per se without an adjustment for other confounders might not be an optimal outcome point in that, you know, less than half the kids get intubated in the ICU. I think it also points out that if you wanted to have a protocol for asthma care, 
that you need to start in the ER because a lot of the decision points are made prior to the ER management. I think the other thing the data provides is some equipoise as far as different therapies because it shows how much variation there really is. And so I, I think that's a helpful thing. What kind of studies do you think we need to do? I think the most fundamental thing that we need is a meaningful score to assess severity of illness. And both severity of illness, need for increased therapy, and consistency when you're escalating and de-escalating care. Um, you know, if you look at the NHLBI, they recommend using peak flow meters and looking at um, measures of dyspnea, whereas the Global Initiative for Asthma includes physical exam and blood gas values. But I, I think that would be the biggest fundamental step is to really validate a measurement to tell when kids are getting better and getting worse uh, so you can reach endpoints. From my experience, I certainly agree with you that that would be an extremely useful tool to have to look at what are we doing and does it really help. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I, I guess really not. I appreciate you, you taking the time to talk with me about this, and I certainly wish the Capcorn Network good luck in working on this problem, which is a common reason for ICU admission. Right. I think they have chosen well in terms of picking a, a very common issue that we, we all see. Um, but as, as you have suggested, there's a lot of complex factors in the management of children with asthma. So it'll be a challenge to sort it all out. Thank you very much, Dr. Bratton. Oh, thank you. We have been talking with Dr. Susan L. Bratton from the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah, discussing the article, Critical Care for Pediatric Asthma, Wide Care Variability and Challenges for Study, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in July 2012. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now find us on Stitcher and BeyondPod, as well as on iTunes. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 42nd Critical Care Congress, which will take place January 19th through 23rd, 2013 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Enjoy paradise in its purest form and catch up on life's most perfect pleasures so you can return from Congress refreshed and energized. Registration opens June 2012 at www.sccm.org congress. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.